difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. Natasha uh, Robinson is off somewhere filling her burritos with a roughage, <laughs> uh, but she'll join us again in the new year. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Jacques Demy's bittersweet French musical about young love and the disruptions of fate. On this episode, we'll shift to Damien Chazelle's La La Land, which counts the umbrellas of Schoberg among its many influences. Though La La Land does pay homage to classic Hollywood musicals, the relationship between Mia, a struggling actress played by Emma Stone, and Sebastian, a struggling jazz man played by Ryan Gosling, follows a similar arc to Guy and Genevieve's relationship with the umbrellas of Cherbourg. Like Guy and Genevieve, Mia and Sebastian fall madly in love with each other and express that love in a number of charming song and dance numbers. And like Guy and Genevieve, Mia and Sebastian drift apart when other aspects of their lives command their attention. Sebastian feels pressure to make a practical living from his talent as a jazz pianist, so he signs on with a popular jazz fusion outfit that takes him on the road and away from Mia. Meanwhile, Mia takes bold steps to pursue her dreams in Hollywood, which opens up the distance between them even further. And like the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, they both wind up in a good place, more or less, just not with each other. We're left to imagine what might have been. We'll talk about the virtues of La La Land after the break, and later we'll bring the Umbrellas of Cherbourg back into the picture to discuss the connections between the two movies. Please stay with us. You're an actress. Yeah. You could write your own roles, something that's as interesting as you are. What are you going to do? I'm going to have my own club. I'm going to play whatever we want. Is that going to happen every time? I think so. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromised. It's very, very exciting. Okay, so Keith and Genevieve, uh, La La Land appears to be an Oscar juggernaut, topping many best of lists, including uh, Uproxes. Yes. And, uh, you know, winning the New York uh, Film Critics Circle. Getting uh, uh, plenty of, of acclaim and some some detractors, of course, as, as well. Uh, what did uh, the two of you make of it? Uh, it? Does it live up to the hype? Well, the hype was quite large, so I don't know that I can say that. But I did really love this movie while being keenly aware throughout that it was a love that would probably not last uh, appro- appro- appropriately. But yeah, like this is a film that really carries you along with it. And then afterward, I really had trouble remembering what I liked about it. Like I had to watch it again right before this podcast just to like kind of remind myself of it because it's kind of like a feeling that you dip into for two hours. And then when it's over, you're like left with kind of the echoes of that very touching ending but everything that comes before it i feel is kind of obliterated by that ending yeah i i kind of have the same experience i've seen la la land twice i saw it at toronto and i saw it again on a screener and i it, yeah it's just, it's a thing where you just it's so exciting and lovely and it works it's firing on all cylinders it works completely when you watch it and then it, it, it does have that strange sensation afterwards of just feeling like sand between your fingers mm-hmm. you just wonder like what am I left with here? Is this? It's not really fair to La La Land that we've brought Umbrellas of Sherberg in uh, to the picture. It's, it's never going to have that kind of depth. But is this the thing with Chazelle? Maybe. I mean, Whiplash almost left me the same way. Just mm. like absolutely riveted, uh, totally 
uh, impressed by his command of style, by the vibrancy of the emotions and the, the the filmmaking. But is there something there? Is there there there? I think it's a terrific movie. I, I mean, it's on my top ten list. Although I, it's, I think it's number seven on my top ten list. And when I showed it to the editor in chief of of Uprox, who saw the film twice in one day, he's like, I don't understand why it's not number one. Well, I, you know, I think the problem is. You know, I've seen Umbrella this year. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, and you've I've, seen Singing in the Rain, seen and the rain. you've I've seen, seen all the yeah, yeah. And, and I've seen other sources of inspiration, and and uh, it synthesizes them really well. This is a really just a remarkable piece of filmmaking. Like every shot, it's like and, yeah, and, the, the technical achievement cannot really be understated. Here. Yeah, and and like I, you know, I wrote this somewhere, but it's like this is someone who had waited all his life to throw everything he wanted, everything he wanted to do in a musical into one movie. And he did it all, but you can kind of feel the effort a little bit, you know, at, mm-hmm. t- at times. And and I say all this saying, I think it's a terrific movie. I, I've seen this movie twice. The first time I left, like just on a complete high from, from seeing it. It's just, just, this is, this is really something watching it again on the screener. I really liked it a lot still, but I think the, maybe some of the infatuation drains away a little bit after, uh, mm-hmm. after the first viewing, I, I can see that, but I don't want to diminish it. And I really, I'm keeping my distance from the inevitable and, you know, you can see it coming 10 miles away. La la back, backlash, oh, la la backlash. It's enveloping film Twitter. I've said this a couple of times, but I do kind of suspect that this is fated to be the, the artist of, mm, of this yeah. year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't mind the artist, and I like this more than the artist. Yeah, I, I like, yeah. And and I, think also, I, like, I just mean in terms of like the praise heaped upon it, and then kind of the immediate fading out of mm. the the conversation. So well, and the step. fascination with the old older oh, yeah, form of entertainment. That, that's yeah, exactly yeah. the point is that yeah. is that it is reviving. It's introducing a lot of people to an experience that they haven't had yeah. before. So, I mean, and let me and, and, little, and film people are territorial about those things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> let me keep a little more praise on this too. It is not a musty. Uh, the artist, which I don't like, you know, but it's a stunt. You know, it's it's a let's mm-hmm. let's revive this for for see what it looks like and see how it plays. And we did something really cool here. This is, I think, this does a really good job of making a contemporary musical. You know, I mean, these are not the realistic struggles of artists in LA right now. But I think it does a good job of, of making what two people in this situation experience and making it big and making it splashy and you know blowing it up and, and making the conflicts you know super broad uh, in a way that musicals always have. That's how musicals work, you know. And, and I think there's more that makes it feel present and, and, and something that happened about what's going on now uh, than the Prius jokes. I think I think it's a very good modern musical. And I, I do want to push back a little bit against something you said, Scott, about it not having the depth or nuance of umbrellas and i do think one thing la la land achieves that umbrellas doesn't is showing us why its central characters are together not to get too much into umbrellas up, up front here uh, but when we meet Guy and genevieve like they're already in love you know mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily see the foundation of their relationship being laid in the problems that they face as a couple are very kind of big broad problems about being separated basically whereas the issues that sebastian and mia are facing are much more specific to them as characters and I think more nuanced in terms of kind of what it is to be an artist and to make a living and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, the two films are obviously kind of functioning in different spheres in that regard. And I think La La Land definitely works in sort of the broader heightened uh, universe it's it's functioning in. Um, but I, I don't I don't want you to slag on La La Land in that way because no, I think there I, there is something deep going on in that relationship. Even though 
I don't love all the aspects of that relationship. A little bit. I mean, there is, in terms of their courtship, I mean, it's a little cute. You know, I mean, I, I like it. It's, I mean, the, we've got two. Oh, you mean when they dance among the stars? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, earlier than that, because you have yeah. this the, this uh, friction between them, yeah. and then they finally, it's it's one of those type of love stories where their their first encounter is yeah. they get one of them. We get, the yeah, we finger. get the meat cute. You right, know, right. We, we and then we get it. Anymore. We get it like three times or something. Yeah. Uh, they before don't like they finally... at all. No, but you know, then they do. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's one of those one of those things. But and I, even we'll... that feels meta. You know, in the context oh, of this movie does. that is so obsessed with these classic Hollywood tropes, the way that they meet and their relationship forms is nodding to those tropes. Oh, and yeah, and of course, then you have a, a scene, them recreating a sequence out of um, Rebel Without a Cause, or at least going to the mm-hmm. Griffith Observatory and, and playing around in that territory. I mean, I think, I guess I disagree with Keith a little bit in thinking about this as a modern musical because i think it's just so much has its foot in the past and Mm -hmm. and the dreams that they have uh, they're kind of retro dreams in a way because you've got the oh you mean the jazz musician (laughs) yeah exactly the jazz music the the, the jazz musician who wants to revive this old form or the emma stone i mean certainly now as as in the past there were you know people go to hollywood young people go to hollywood chasing their dreams but that kind of a character that ingenue type mm-hmm. uh hollywood uh, character is an old type as well and then of course you know the, the the film is constantly kind of going back to classic hollywood locations and you know studio backlots which are things again you associate more with the past than the present i got a call back what come on <laughs> for what for a tv show the one that i was telling you about Earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC? Yeah. Congratulations. That's really incredible. Exciting. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, I'll, 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 I can take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. To go back even further to a point, um, my reaction to the film when I first saw it was, it was kind of exciting because I, my thought was like, people are just going to flip out over this movie because they won't have seen anything like it. And I think Damien Chazelle knows that mm-hmm. to a degree, uh, which is why he can just pilfer relentlessly from the best musicals of all time because many people will not have seen it or experienced a musical in the very classic you know made for the movie sense that la la land is yeah we've had musicals but they tend to be adaptations yeah and and i think the staging of those musicals is usually just atrocious. I mean, you look at like a Mamma Mia. Or a, I was going to say, I'm waiting for you to say Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, I can't say. That's, that's my go-to example, but our hairspray or something, and it's just... What if you have people who don't know how to make a movie, or right. much less a movie musical? Yeah. <laughs> the producers is another one. It's just, let's have the person who staged it on Broadway do the, do the movie version. It's like, no, that's a really bad idea. It's going to look like a stage version on the screen, and it's going to just seem leaden, and, and that's usually what do, happens. But this is so far about, from that. You want to talk about Les Mis? 
Oh my god! <laughs> it's the opposite of Les Mis, though, because like Les Mis is so uncinematic, and so many. I mean, the Anne Hathaway scene obviously works works well, and the one scene in the movie that really works. But yeah. you know, you don't you don't go to musicals for close ups. Yeah, well, I mean, the one, yeah, yeah. It's like Les Mis Rob. It's like this visual strategy stinks for the whole movie, and then you get one scene where that that visual strategy pays off, and that's uh, that's the big number for her. But in any case, you know, none of those films feel like La La Land does, and you know, we've seen other films that have paid homage to classic musicals or tried to work some sort of modern variation on them like uh, everyone says I love you for example which sort of plays up the amateurishness of the actors who are singing or not really singers etc but this doesn't do that either this 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 really kind of moves forward as if the musical genre isn't completely dead <laughs> and I appreciate that you know it's exciting for me and I think for us as fans of classic Hollywood musicals but I think for many audiences it's going to be a total revelation because they'll just simply have not seen anything like it and let's not undersell either it's it's a really good musical i mean mm-hmm. from the first scene where the camera is swooping along the highway i think that's your least favorite scene but, but uh, yeah but whatever i like it um <laughs> and, and the songs are really good too i mean i mean you could play these and enjoy them out, out of context and be perfectly happy yeah i mean that opening number which scott apparently hates uh, <laughs> i like the choreography more than the song yeah, I, I actually kind of agree with that, and I am not enamored of most of the songs in this film. Actually, really, but, not yeah. even here to the dreamers. Come on, here to the dreamers. Yeah, I mean, her Emma Stone's big number is it. You know, it, it's it's her big number, and it's it's good. And I mean, I I do like the recurring mm-hmm. mo- uh, City of Stars motif a lot, and I've been hearing my boyfriend plink it out on the piano for in the two weeks since we saw this movie, <laughs> so I'm very familiar with it. But yeah, that opening number is. This such a stylistic throwback where you do have this big opening number that is just setting the scene. It's not about introducing the characters or uh, kicking off the plot. It's just a big celebratory song and dance number that opens the film. And it, it's, a, it's a bold move in, in 2016 to do that. And um, I respect it. I honestly don't know that it really works of a piece with the movie. It feels a little more like look at what I'm doing here. But I respect that he went there and I, I respect the choreography of it and just the ambition of that opening number. I like everything but the actual song and the, <laughs> the singing in that number because I do think that sequence is important and clever in taking the thing that everyone complains about L.A., mm-hmm. the, the worst aspect of L.A., according to everyone who lives there, which is the traffic. And, I, I and, hadn't heard that. <laughs> and, and then makes it and then makes it recontextualize it as this uh, land of enchantment, L.A., even even if you're in this terrible situation, this miserable place, this you know traffic jam that goes on forever, this eight and a half situation, you're about to see L.A. transformed into a magical place. So I, I like that sentiment. It's the weirdest number in this movie, Start a Fire, though, because you don't bring John Legend in to do a, a crappy musical mm-hmm. number, but at the same time, you're supposed to, to understand yeah. that he's, he's just not into this music. You know, it's, it's very odd. It's yeah. not a bad song. No, I but... I kind of like the jazz fusion <laughs> yeah, sure. number. I, think you're, I, think, I don't think you're supposed to think of it as bad. I think yeah. you're supposed to think of it as, as not him. It's an odd tension the film has to work. Yeah. I don't know. I See, I thought of it as bad. And I was, and it well, made me, the film wants it, you to think of it, it, it as me, bad. And it made me think, like, why is John, why is John Legend doing this? Why, mm. why would he want to be participating in what is a fairly sophisticated musical number in which it is in the context of being kind of tacky? Like, it, it's almost, it's basically just a step above the samba tapas place. <laughs> 
I mean, the, okay, this is Damien Chazelle. Clearly, jazz is important to him. Clearly, the Sebastian character is a kind of a avatar for him. Mm-hmm. Can we all acknowledge that Sebastian is also pretty insufferable? <laughs> like, it, it helps you have Ryan Gosling playing. Yeah, yeah but I but, mean, but John whole... Legend's character has a point. Jazz yeah. does need to evolve. <laughs> well, I think he's. I think he's treated as a little insufferable too. Yeah, just in, in that, and and on second viewing, the whole. You taught me to listen to jazz. You taught me to appreciate something. Thanks, dude. You know, yeah. it's a little it's a little condescending. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's a purist. And I think what is interesting about their relationship is when they each try to kind of adopt the other's approach to their work and their life, they they fail because she tries to live up to his ideal of like pure artistry by like writing this one woman show and and no one comes and and she fails and he like lands his practical job and you know makes a, a living and it you know we're led to believe it kind of kills him inside so like th- there's kind of a, a subtle suggestion here that there are different approaches to being an artist and what works for one person may not work for another person. Or alternately, she adopts his way of doing things and succeeds with the one person she needs to succeed with. And it kind of opens up the future to her. And, and he takes on her more commercial, practical uh, approach. And, and uh, he's miserable for a couple of years and buys up and gets the club that he wanted all yeah. along, you know? So, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we talk about the melancholy ending here, but I mean, it really is a tremendously happy ending for both of them in terms of everything other than their relationship. But like the circumstances that lead to her becoming a huge movie star are really strange. (laughs) Like, you know, she's one of eight people at her one woman show happens to be a big time casting director who wants to build a movie around her you know like it's it, it's basically if, if mike lee were a hugely successful hollywood director like sort, yeah. of, sort of like we'll improvise this and, and build the characters together kind yeah. of kind of movie yeah and i mean that that certainly fits with the like hollywood fairy tale tone and you know, the happily ever after aspect which is it's nice that it is undercut with that melancholy of them not being able to achieve their dreams together but um you know the way by which it gets there is unrealistic. Let's say. Well, you know it has. <laughs> and again, realism is not exactly has, this has this uh, movie stock and trade. One point I made when I first saw the film, uh, a piece I wrote for Gentleman's Quarterly, um, <laughs> is that the whole which Genevieve bit... is not allowed to read. Apparently, <laughs> Gentleman's yeah. I've, I've written for them, but I'm not allowed to read them. <laughs> Gentleman's Quarterly. I just like calling them gentlemen. <laughs> GQ dot com just seems uh, not as <laughs> fancy as Gentleman's Quarterly, but. One point I was making is that that the whole jazz thing is another meta moment of the movie, which is, you know, so many people say, I hate jazz, and they don't know what jazz Mm -hmm. is. And so he introduces Emma Stone to what jazz is. Uh, but what's being commented on there is really I hate musicals, mm-hmm. which is what mm-hmm. people say. And now Damien Chazelle is going to show us through La La Land what a real musical looks like. To me, that's the real subtext of that conversation yeah. is Chazelle being able to forward the movie that we're seeing as something authentic and something to love and something that pays tribute to the real Hollywood musical. Uh, yeah, real- I think the whole jazz is dying thing is also coded for movies in some ways as well. But uh, it's a bigger thing. Sorry. Yeah, well, and, and, and it gets even more explicit with that conversation where Mia is kind of 
fretting about her her one woman show and she says it feels really nostalgic to me which is is a weird thing to say about your own work but we'll go with it for the purposes of this meta exercise that Chazelle clearly is wanting to engage in here she says it feels really nostalgic to me and Sebastian says that's the point and she says are people going to like it and his response is f em, you know <laughs> um which is is certainly in keeping with that character but not necessarily with the tone of the film which does seem to want to be liked more than that uh, sentiment would suggest yeah it, from the beginning too i mean yeah. it, it it definitely wants to knock you out with its style and, yeah. and pizzazz and it's not a, not a modest achievement and not uh I don't know. It doesn't have that kind of like soulful quality. It's it's really splashy. But there's going to be a lot of aspects of this film that we're going to want to compare to Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And so we're going to do that in a minute. Uh, We'll be right back to talk about it in Connections. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. As I said in the introduction to this episode, Me and Sebastian's story follows a similar arc to Guy and Genevieve's story in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Broadly put, they fall madly in love in the first half, but their relationship falls apart in the second. So uh, we can talk about that and know, you know the various other things that connect these two films. But to kind of carry over from the previous segment and go right to the end of the film... Mm-hmm. Do we feel in some way that Sebastian's situation mirrors Genevieve's in some respect? I mean, I think we Hmm. can feel that Mia's ending is a happy ending. She has everything that she could possibly want. But but I am at least a little bit haunted by the image of Sebastian being that lone person piano man in, yeah. the, in the shadows you know watching you know the woman that he loved go away he isn't found he doesn't have his yeah. Madeline. Maybe he has to walk by a giant billboard of her face every day to get into <laughs> his club thought that was a particularly gutting touch but is that character wired for long-term relationships mm. i mean this is someone who's very much in 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 love with his own infatuation with music and and reviving and keeping this flame alive and i don't know ultimately if if you know we don't see what drives them apart but i i wouldn't be surprised if that didn't play into it in some way yeah that's interesting i didn't really consider that uh when watching that ending just as i didn't necessarily consider genevieve as being sad at the end of umbrellas but that sort of the imbalance between the two parties in terms of where they've ended up and how they feel about it is that's an interesting wrinkle to both of these endings well and i think there's a there's something here's where the film here's where la la land is modern in my opinion compared to uh, umbrellas and it's that love is not enough in a mod in the modern world you need a different kind of fulfillment Mm. and that fulfillment for both of these characters is realizing their dreams not necessarily being happy together being happy with someone or uh, that sort of thing i mean i I guess to a certain point Guy, in his you know very modest way does realize his dreams they're they're me and sebastian's dreams are more far-flung but the premium that is placed on those dreams those ambitions that that may take you away or in this case do take you away from somebody you care a great deal about it's a very modern thing is it not mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to put your career above above everything about including love yeah well i mean these two movies are are functioning in different eras with different societal expectations placed on the two genders you know and in umbrellas you know we're not 
given uh, any dreams for Genevieve beyond being with Guy, you know? She doesn't, like, want to take over the umbrella store or anything, (laughs) you know? Like, she wants to have a a child with Guy, you know? That is the extent of her dreams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's obviously regressive to a certain extent, but it it works in the context of the film. Yeah, 1964. Yeah, yeah. But by virtue of taking place in the present day and just taking place in the entertainment world where like dreams are kind of hardwired into you if you're in that world, mm-hmm. you know, you you don't go to Hollywood because you want to like get married and have a kid necessarily, you know. The more we talk about it, the more I think La La Land is a much richer film than I perhaps gave it credit for. It's just dealing in these very kind of familiar tropes. But then again, so is Umbrellas. It's just kind of the style with which they do it that differs. I like scenes like where they start to kind of drift apart and then come back to get, you know, they get back together when Sebastian gets wind of this opportunity and Mm -hmm. comes, goes to find her. And then they have a scene, I believe after that, where it's like, so where are we? Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually... Where is, a, the, where is this relationship now? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up that scene as kind of like a key difference in between these two movies because the two characters actually talk about their relationship and they come to a mutual agreement to part ways, um, which is vastly different from what happens in um, Umbrellas, which is sadder in, in a lot of ways just because there is no... I don't want to say closure because I don't think they have closure necessarily in La La Land, but it's it's out of their control in a way that it's not in La La Land. And I think that's important in terms of establishing this relationship between me and Sebastian as something worthwhile that had an effect on both of them and, and left a mark on both of them. And I think that's only maybe hinted at in Umbrellas. It's made explicit in La La Land. That that also it's a modern touch too. The whole "Where are we?" conversation. Mm-hmm. That's because that's not a conversation that characters in the last act of a classical musical have. Right. They know where they are. They're, they're, <laughs> there's no big "Where are we?" number. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're singing and smooching at that point, you yeah, know. And, yeah. and this, for as much as this is that type of film, it's not that type of film. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, is there anything else to say uh, comparing these two endings? Because they I, they do echo each other a little bit. I mean, I think there's kind of the you know the one thing La La Land has that's different is that has this kind of twenty fifth hour. Ending, mm-hmm. where, where last temptation of Christ, the la- uh, right? Last temptation yeah. of Christ, where it's like you're gonna get, you know, what if something happened just a little different? How mm-hmm. would things go? And so we get that kind of fantasy. Is it's it's a sort of a, it's sort of a heightened fantasy within a heightened fantasy, which I thought was really kind of an interesting, sophisticated way to do this too. It's like this is a movie that's already kind of in a, in a loftier sphere in terms of the way it's playing out this this uh, drama and then you get the sort of the musical version of the musical you're already watching in <laughs> yeah, some ways yeah. you get the american in paris kind of uh, ballet uh, um, oh that's absolutely I know, I, right no 25th I forget yeah 25th it's like 25th it, hour combined with american paris combined with the brothers <laughs> yeah. of cherbourg combined with the last temptation of christ i guess uh, yeah. but but uh, I, I think this film la la land i think it's a little in the middle but i think the end uh, overwrites a lot of that i mean i i love Sorry, Jennifer. I love the audition number, and I love the last stretch of this. I think it's just a wonderful piece of filmmaking. Uh, um, All that being said, it's not the end of Umbrella this year. Boring, you know. Uh, One other thing these endings do have in common is they both take place at winter. 
And we haven't really mm-hmm. talked about the structure of La La Land and how it is divided into seasons um, in a way that is similar and perhaps nodding to the way that Umbrellas is divided into into parts. Yeah. And um, there's a, a time jump at the end. But it's interesting that La La Land is divided into seasons, but it's not necessarily sequential seasons. You know, and, and by placing it in L.A., where there kind of yeah. are no seasons, right. it's, it's, I, I feel like that's a really interesting and probably purposeful way to organize the film because the seasons become kind of metaphorical for the status of their relationship it you can know, only begin- be that yeah because, it, because it, what we see is la no matter what right right, right. so you know it begins in spring when their love begins to take root and then it's in full bloom in summer and then things start to get a little more difficult in autumn and then winter is where this melancholy re-meeting happens just like in Umbrellas, you know, that movie is so associated in my mind with like that snow globe, mm-hmm. as, as you put it, scene. But it's just that one scene at the end that takes place in, in winter, you know, at Christmas time. There, I think there's a, I'd, I'd go so far as to say a purposeful echo there in La La Land in terms of staging that melancholic reconciliation during winter. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. One thing, the other thing I liked about the ending of, of La La Land is that it has this almost like contrast of tones between the sequence within the the sequence and the sequence sequence itself. Because once you do, when you do get to that fantasy scene about what might have been, that's when Chazelle just completely hits the gas. It's just this wonderful montage that's just lighter than air and then when you come out of it the melancholic qualities of the scene that you enter are tug on you all the more because the tone is just downshifted from this high that you've been on which is a nice touch so i think the film definitely has some pretty good closing speed so one of the differences between the two movies has to do with the singing the la la land is a live singing and uh well it's um, it's not live they're not singing live well, on no, camera but it's, but it's the actors it's, it's the actors voices. voices and it's not so much in umbrellas of Cherbourg. How, how did that play for you i mean i don't know how much aware you are watching umbrella Cherbourg that the voices are dead yeah. i don't think knowing that takes any of the magic away from it i think it'd be hard to get away with that now because because we're so used to a different technical approach where you're going to spot a dubbed in and voice more likely than you would when that, that kind of approach was much more common before. Also, the, the voices worked. I think Gosling and Stoner, they're not professional singers, but I think the voices have a lot of character and it sort of works to have the not quite entirely polished voices working. But I'm, I'm not underselling their, their singing skills. They're both quite good. But um, Yeah, well, Stone in particular is interesting in La La Land because she can sing. Like, she can belt. There's mm-hmm. there's video on the internet of her, like, in singing competitions when she's young. Like, she, and, and obviously in that big climactic audition number, mm-hmm. she, you know, gets that big moment. But for most of the film, she has this kind of, like, thready quality to her voice. And I've seen the suggestion, and I'm willing to buy it that that is kind of intentional as her character being kind of reserved and holding back up until that moment, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say because... Kind of growing into her voice. That makes, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that too on second viewing especially. It's like, this is, she's finding gears in her in singing yeah. that she's not finding in the rest of the movie. City of stars, just one thing everybody wants. Some 
the skies to open the world and send me real a voice that says I'll be here and you'll be alright. So like if that's a, a specific choice, I get that and I and I guess I respect it. But I did kind of want some more like big musical singing in this in this movie. I'm I'm not gonna lie, like if you're if you're gonna go like full bore, big Hollywood musical I feel like the singing has got to be there and the dancing's got to be there. And it's not quite there for both Gosling and Stone. Like they're, they're very proficient. They get through it well enough. And there is a certain kind of scrappy charm to the way they do it. But you know, they're not Fred and Ginger, you know, and and that's maybe purposeful. But there's, there's still a part of me that wants Fred and Ginger here. Yeah, you I mean, know? Sh- Shazelle said it is purposeful, yeah. the, the not quite professional quality to the to the dancing. I find it charming. It's and it's certainly not. Everyone says I love you, which was really uncomfortable. <laughs> Musical yeah. numbers. Those, those, those some charming. Uh, I mean, I remember yeah. one with Edward Norton in a, in a jewelry shop that, that was nice because it was just playing. It was a choreographed dance number that played up his, you know, amateur dancing, and it was mm-hmm. you know had a certain charm to it. Um, but I think in a way you could say a couple of things. One, I think it would just have been a bridge too far for modern audiences to accept what was accepted very easily mm-hmm. um, in classic Hollywood when people saw musicals all the time that they're not hearing the voices of the mm-hmm. actors that they're, they're being dubbed. It would Op- seem like a cheat. It would open, open like it up much. and there's Justin Timberlake's voice. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So that, that would, not, that would be a little bit tough. And I guess the other point is that maybe the film is let down by the fact that the songs are just pretty good. You know, that that kind of stuck with me. I do like the songs. They are not brilliant songs that are going to stand the test of time, like or numbers even, that are going to blow you away. And there's certainly nothing remotely close to the transcendence of Michel Legrand's at his at his best. I yeah, mean, but they are discrete songs, which is something that you can't really say for most of Umbrellas outside of "I Will Wait for You." But th- mm-hmm. that's kind of again more of a motif. But there 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 aren't numbers in Umbrellas. You know, it, no, it, it's, it's an un- it's a little unfair. But yeah. you, you know what I'm, I mean. Which what is going to trigger more of an emotional reaction from you just hearing it? The music from La La Land, or you know, some of the key bits of Michel Legrand's score. To me, it's not. It is not close. It is not close. <laughs> it is the French film uh, that I that I like. One thing that we touched on a little bit in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the location, um, which is a real location in, in Normandy. It's sort of a working class town that that has been given a little bit of fairy dust by Demi. A lot more color, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, Just wallpapered the entire town. And, and, <laughs> and of course, this the, the L.A. that we see in La La Land is, is not necessarily the L.A. we know, and that's something that, that is introduced in the first sequence. So what, what, did, what did you make of the evocation of place? Well, I mean both of these films kind of have their settings in the title more or less like where they are set is important to the story both films are telling and i think both settings kind of define the central relationships to a certain extent like we talked about kind of the difference between me and sebastian versus guy and genevieve and sort of the disparity of ambition between them and like modern LA, you can't really tell a story about these kind of characters in modern LA without bringing those elements into into the fold. And whereas Cherbourg is this small working class town in 1964, where a dream of opening a gas station is a, a realistic and appropriate dream for that for those characters, you know, 
Um, so I think it's it's really important that both of these films evoke their setting and call to their setting as much as they do. I think La La Land does it much more strongly and self-consciously. Um, I mean, that that opening number, you know, and the Prius jokes and, you know, the the various landmarks. Yeah. But, and, you know, Cherbourg is, is much more subtle and just kind of like living in that space rather than commenting on it. But they both, I think, depend on their setting quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, La La Land's like Hollywood's greatest hits, yeah. right? Uh, with the uh, Griffith Observatory, and then you get what appears to be the Fox logo in the backdrop of one scene, right? Yeah. That's, well, it, that's sunset. Yeah, and you, and you get the filmed in Hollywood, USA, at the at the, mm-hmm. at the end card, you know, there. And one thing I found interesting in La La Land is how, like, the way the setting was portrayed kind of, like, shifted along with Sebastian and Mia's relationship. In the autumn segment where things are starting to go downhill, there's a short shot of Mia driving, and through the window you see the uh, marquee of the Rialto, uh, which is where they go to see mm-hmm. Rebel Without a Cause on their first date, and it's been closed. You know, yeah. and it's just it's it's pretty on the nose. I'm not going to lie, but it's I think it's a really good example of how the setting functions to reflect what is happening in that relationship. Yeah, and and as I suggested before, the whole death of jazz, death of film, mm-hmm. end of things. You know, uh, there's a film's not at all subtly uh, littered with uh, little bits of old Hollywood too. Uh, I like the mural with all the old Hollywood stars mm-hmm. that they walk by a couple times. It reminded me of. Uh, did you ever see the Late Show, the Robert Benton movie? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's and it's a uh, it's a really fun movie, but it's sort of a a take on classic Hollywood mysteries set in like 70s LA. So there's all these like, crumbling remains of classic Hollywood. So I think there's a little bit of, of that in this. Um, I mean, I thought it was neat. I, I, I liked that. I also, um, for all that, I would love to watch a epilogue to uh, Los Angeles Place itself. It's sort of a, a weary <laughs> uh, walking through of all these uh, uh, all these locations and what awful abuse they make of uh, Los Angeles. So, uh, Just the fact that it's L.A. It would yes. uh, infuriate Oh, Tom Anderson, Anderson the yes. director of that film. If you, if you don't know, Los Angeles plays itself. We talked about it at the Zob. It's a three-hour-long look at Los Angeles as it's portrayed on film that used to be a quasi-underground, and now it's widely available on Netflix and elsewhere. It was a movie of the week, right? It was a movie it was of the week. We had, to watch it on, we had to watch it on YouTube because it wasn't legally yeah. available. Can, can, can we just pat ourselves on the back and just say that we worked for a for-profit website in, in which we devoted uh, <laughs> a huge, a huge, huge a week of content to uh, Los uh, Angeles plays, plays itself. itself, which you could, you could only really watch in full on YouTube but the checks that Tom Anderson set us, oh, set us to do. incredible <laughs> but uh, yeah. I felt good about it it got done it happened so uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg is widely available on Blu-ray and DVD from Criterion as part of the great Jacques Demy box set it's also streaming on Filmstruck and the usual places La La Land is in theaters right now and will keep on expanding through the new year and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, um, I'm going to channel the spirit of Tasha Robinson, who always makes a point of recommending supplementary material in this segment. And I am going to suggest some Tasha written pieces, since she's not oh here to my, stop oh me, goodness. related she, to La La Land. She'd be blushing. I know. Tasha is kind of on the La La Land be- 
feet over on the verge. And uh, I admit that I did comb through her her pieces to, in preparation for this episode. So I would be remiss if I didn't call out two really great interviews she did. Tasha is a great interviewer. Mm-hmm. And she talked to Damien Chazelle for The Verge, which is a great interview. But I would highly recommend her conversation with La La Land's choreographer, Mandy Moore, which gets into some really fun details and facts about how this movie was choreographed for the camera, which I know is something that's very interesting to you, Scott. And Mm -hmm. it's it's just a great conversation. I would highly recommend checking it out. The name of the article is La La Land's Choreographer Shares the Film's Sneakiest Dance Movie References. That title's a little misleading. There's a lot more to it than that, obviously, since Tasha wrote it. So Internet headlines. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, it, ha- it has... Uh, does, does she talk about the underwater sequence? Yes. Okay. Yeah, about the underwater turned uh, stars sequence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so definitely check that out. And then as far as a movie recommendation, I'm going to recommend something that has come and gone from theaters, but I have been, as I think most of have been doing a lot of end of year catch up as we do our various end of year lists. And one that I caught up with and ended up making my top 10 of the year uh, is Loving, Jeff Nichols's second film of this year after Midnight Special, which we did a show on earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And Nichols had a really good year for me. I, I really liked both the films he did, but um, I think Loving is really extraordinary uh, on, a, on a lot of levels, uh, on an acting level, particularly Ruth Negga and Joel Edgerton as the couple whose marriage was the basis of a Supreme Court case that ended up overturning the ban on interracial marriage. They are both excellent in their roles and very understated performances. And I love that the movie just really focuses on their marriage and not on this history-making court case. It's all about how these two characters relate to each other and the emotions that are kind of driving uh, this series of events. And it's out of theaters. I don't know if it's going to be in the awards conversation much. I think maybe Nega will be, mm-hmm. but I, I imagine it will be uh, making its way onto DVD and streaming soon. So if you if you missed it, keep an eye out for it. It's kind of mysterious that that film didn't uh, catch yeah. on more than it did. Yeah, we uh, well, I'll throw one last plug in here. We talked about it extensively, uh, Scott and I did on the film spotting top ten episodes, which we were both guests on, and those will. First, the first part is already dropped, and the second part will be dropping uh, in a couple of days after this episode drops. Yes. So. Yeah, it was a solid five-hour recording session. Yeah. I think I think we, we got through it fast, too. That's how it's a big, <laughs> it's an epic show. It was very exciting yeah. to have Genevieve on. She's not uh, done that, yeah. uh, been part of that before. It was great. Yeah, I feel like Loving kind of falls victim to being understated in mm-hmm. some ways. It's so beautifully subtle, um, so rich. And those. Edgerton, like, I mean, does he have 30 lines of dialogue in the whole movie? And it's such a wonderful performance. Well, and Nega's great, too. And, and that's true of Midnight Special, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that was, like, an understated science fiction movie that perhaps kind of suffered by being that in, in the wider audience's yeah. minds, you know? But oh, Edgerton I, also had a very understated performance in that. He's so good. I'm going to follow Jeff Nichols wherever he goes. You yeah. Know? That's, uh, oh gosh! Why don't I just quickly? I'm gonna. I'm, you're you're behind the curve. I'm gonna be a little ahead of the curve here. Okay. There's movies you can see that are terrific that are still coming up, 
in theaters. Um, I'm just going to list them off and talk a little about each silence, uh, which we consider for our next episode. We reject it for our next episode, but I think it's a really, there's dissenting opinions out there, maybe even in this room, but, but uh, I think it's a, a wonderful, uh, wonderfully intense uh, meditation on fate for Martin Scorsese, uh, Tony Erdman, which debuted at con last year. And, and, and like, it was like the one, one film that hadn't actually been released that crept onto the BBC's 100 greatest films of the 21st century. And those of us who hadn't seen at that point kind of scratched our heads, but it, it is, it's a remarkable film. It's one of the strangest movies I've ever seen. It's mm-hmm. a two and a half hour plus comedy about about a, a father trying to reconnect with his daughter through a series of pranks and, and disguises. By by description, there it sounds un- unbearable, but it's it's a really wonderful film uh, and moving in all, all kinds of strange, unexpected ways. Um, I really like 20th Century Women. Mike Mills is uh, yeah. virtually plotless, but wonderful. Uh, it's like a memory uh, dump. Uh, yeah, evocation of, of of life in late seventies California. And uh, the new Abadovar film, which I think kind of kind of is kind of overlooked. I don't know if it's necessarily one of his best films, but I think it's very good. It's Julieta, and uh, it's sort of this interesting mystery with no resolution, and ultimately uh, the mystery is not where where it lies. And, and uh, it's a kind of a vague description. It's kind of in some ways a, a vague film, but uh, one I, I admired a lot. And if you like if you like the more serious Abadovar and, and more Hitchcock evoking Abadovar, it's, it's it's one you're going to enjoy. So there you go, a bunch of movies to go out and see that aren't even in theaters yet as, <laughs> as we record this. I mean, I can. I'm going to have to. Yeah, I, I will second that because we, you've just done quick hits on, uh, you know, my number two and number three favorite yeah. films of yeah. the year. Uh, two being Tony Erdman and and um, three being uh, Silence. So uh, uh, both of which are will take up plenty of your time. Uh, they're both they're <laughs> a little short of three hours, uh, but one is funnier immersive. than the other. <laughs> that is true. That is true. And one is super austere and very Bergman-y. I'm going to go with something maybe not as essential, but worth watching. You know, for for a recent Rolling Stone list on the best horror films of 2016, I volunteered to do a short write-up about The Invitation, which I used as my excuse to see the movie on Netflix. <laughs> um, I, I did the same thing for I'm, I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which I also really like, uh, but I'm just going to talk about The Invitation here. The Invitation is a fascinating slow-burn thriller from uh, Karen Kusama, who made a splash back in 2000 with her debut feature, Girl Fight. Uh, and in a year full of movies about parents grieving for their loss of their children, I'm not even going to say one of them because it's kind of a twist, but Arrival, say, or Collateral Beauty, uh, The Invitation twists that grief into particularly dangerous uh, form of denial. It's about a couple uh, named Eden and David who invite a big group of friends to a dinner party in the Hollywood Hills, including Eden's ex-husband, with whom they they lost their son. He's seeing her for the first time in over two years. Uh, They're led through a series of awkward party games, and they're evangelized, too, about this new-agey therapy in Mexico where Eden has learned to compartmentalize the loss of her son. And the whole film, and really the evening for the guests, has that kind of frog and boiling water quality going, in which the heat is just turned up so slowly that that they and you as a viewer don't realize quite how scalding it's getting. I I, I like the build-up to this film a little bit more than the payoff. The ending is kind of a twilight zony twist that uh i thought was pretty tacky but getting there is a lot of fun and uh has a lot of fun little mini twists along the way and some great performances and style so uh it's you know it's, it's streaming on netflix now so it wouldn't be hard for you to see so the invitation right yeah. it's been a i mean i say this as someone who does not keep up with horror 
But as someone who knows a lot of people who keep up with horror, it seems like it's been a, a pretty good or at least interesting oh, year yeah. for the genre. Definitely. I mean, The Witch was this year mm-hmm. and uh, Green Room, if you want to count yeah. that as a horror horror film. And a lot of little things. I thought Don't Breathe was outstanding uh, for a studio horror machine. It doesn't get much better crafted than that. So yeah. um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff. To check out and some, um, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of good horror films on the radar. I would recommend kind of looking through that Rolling Stone list because I think, all, you know, the films on there are definitely worth a look. All right, check it out. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out January 10th and 12th. Keith, what do we have lined up? For our next episode, we'll be taking a trip to the land of Jim Jarmusch, where the conversations are short, the shots are long, and the greatest song you've never heard is probably played on the jukebox. We'll be pairing Jarmusch's latest, Patterson, starring Adam Driver as a bus driver named Patterson in Patterson, New Jersey, with Jarmusch's 1984 breakthrough film, Stranger Than Paradise, in which a pair of New Yorkers and a Hungarian visitor go on a journey across America. Patterson is currently rolling out in theaters. Stranger Than Paradise is available on DVD and is also available streaming on Filmstruck and available for rent on other streaming services. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the umbrellas of Cherbourg and La La Land and anything else film related. Maybe Arrival again. You got some more thoughts on Arrival? <laughs> um, we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? I am at box.com at the culture section there, mostly editing, but occasionally popping my head out to write. And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. I'm on uprocks.com, uh, a la Genevieve, uh, mostly editing, occasionally writing. And I'm on Twitter at kphips3000. I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore. Tobias, and uh, I'm writing like crazy. <laughs> you can find my work all over the place uh, at places like uh, NPR and Variety, uh, Guardian, New York Times, and um, other such fine outlets. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Jennifer Kosky for providing this uh, lovely recording space in her home base, her home. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. So bring on the rebels, the ripples from pebbles. 